cookbook author and cooking instructor Sandra A. Gutierrez is our guest again today on Vital Voices as we continue our conversation about her newest book, Latinissimo, Home Recipes from the 21 Countries of Latin America. You point out that every Latin American country has some version um, of paella or something similar to it. How did rice become such a dominant part of the cuisines in these cultures? Yeah, interestingly enough, uh, rice was brought by the Spanish who had gotten it from the Moors and the Arab world who got it from Asia, of course. And, and they, they bring this, this grain that is quickly enmeshed into the, into the cuisines of the Novo Americans or the New Americans and also the African vein with all the enslaved people that were brought by that Iberians, meaning the Spaniards and the Portuguese that descend and colonize Latin America, they already had a very strong tr tradition of combining rice and peas in Africa, which once in Latin America became a combination in the pot of rice and beans, because beans are all from Latin America. It's peas that are from uh, Africa and from southern the southern United States. So this enmeshment of the two very basic ingredients uh, that provide a full that that make up a full protein once you combine them was food for many 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 people who had to subsist on very little uh, food with very little money that is the beginning of the the love of rice in latin america or why we depend so much on it but the spaniards of course brought a lot of rice dishes with them uh, including the method of making pilaf which is what most latin americans do where you start your rice by cooking it in a little bit of oil and then you add your liquid and if you look today at our trinity, what we call our trinity, which is the one thing that we have in common through Latin America other than corn, our trinity in every dish or in every national dish is rice, beans, and plantains. Mm -hmm. And it is the combination of the three major cultures that formed the basis of every single Latin American cuisine. So you have the Iberians, the Europeans, you have the beans from the native people in, in Latin America, and then you have the plantains that came from Africa. So those three cultures on a plate symbolize the base of modern Latin American cuisines. When you are making a dish like arroz con pollo, is there a particular kind of long grain rice that you prefer? It depends on the country that you're in. So for long grain rice, any kind of long grain rice will do except basmati. Basmati is not a rice that's used in Latin America. It has an or jasmine. It's not, it, it, these are rice, um, varieties that have a lot of floral, um, intonations or, or, or flavor to them. So you go, you go for your long grain white rice, but depending on some countries, some countries like in the Latin Caribbean will use shorter grain rice in Puerto Rico. Usually in Puerto Rico, they use, um, a medium grain rice. So it depends. It depends on the country. Some arroz con pollos are thicker and more soupy. Some of them are really, really dry where your grains are, are, of rice are very separate. But that is one of the dishes that is the most similar to paella that we all have throughout Latin America. Here in Appalachia, we are very good about making food go a long way, stretching mm -hmm. food. One example that you point to in your book from Latin cultures is melanesis. Describe melanesis yes. for me. 
Milanesas are very thin cutlets that have been pounded very, very thinly. And then they are passed through flour, some egg, um, washed through egg wash, and then you cover it in breadcrumbs. It is very similar to a schnitzel. Um, it is very uh, similar to, um, a, your, here that since we're in the South, I'm going to say to your fried steak, your chicken fried steak, but it's very, very thin. And the reason that it's done thinly is that big families with little budget, which is most of us in Latin America, uh, when you pound your meat thinly, it looks bigger on the plate and you can get more meat out of a, out of a thin piece of meat. So we do that and, and the breading makes it thicker and it makes it go a longer way. The coming together of different cultures to create dishes that you describe in this book is fascinating to me. And one great example, I think, is in Peru, the mm -hmm. Lomo Saltados. Yes. The, the Saltados are stir fries. And it is exactly the same methodology that they use in China because the Chinese influence in Peruvian cuisine is huge. So is the Japanese which they call Nikkei influence. And so is the African and the Middle Eastern. But Chinese food has just made uh, an amazing uh, impact. And so saltados are stir-fries. The lomo saltado is the national dish of um, of Peru. And it is a stir-fried that has soy sauce, just like the Chinese, onions and peppers. But the American, the Peruvian addition, the Incan addition are tomatoes which you have, you have the Chinese oyster sauce. And then even though you eat it with rice, you always include French fries or fried potatoes in the dish mm -hmm. because potatoes are also native to Peru. So it's this amalgamation of Chinese Incan ingredients in one plate. It is truly sensational, super easy to make, or easy to make. So I include a recipe for that too. How do you tell when an avocado is ripe? <laughs> I call it my belly button test. Um, first of all, of course, people assume that just touching an avocado and feeling it, if it yields to your touch, it's ripe. But like I say in the book, there is ripe and then there is rotten. And the difference is it can happen just in, in a matter of, of hours. So what I do is I buy my avocado still green. If the stem is tightly attached to the avocado, that avocado is still green. If the stem comes off uh, easily from the avocado, then the, the avocado is already ripe. So the difference is when do I know when it's ripe and when it's overripe? If the color that you see in the bottom of the stem, once you leave um, in the belly button, what I call the belly button of the avocado, if the color is yellow or very light green, your avocado is perfect. But if your avocado, if the color is brown, then your avocado is overly ripe. So many people will cut into an avocado and make guacamole with overly ripe avocados and end up with stringy avocados. And that is because overly ripe avocados start growing their roots from within. And so what you're really getting there are already pieces of, of immature roots in your guacamole. So if you don't want any stringy guacamole, learn the belly button system and learn to always look for avocados with stems so you can do the little test. Most avocados in the stores will come with stems. What about platanos, plantains? Any similar grocery store buying tips? 
Yeah, it depends on uh, how you're going to use the platanos or the plantains. If you're going to use them as a vegetable, in some of the recipes, you'll use them as vegetables. You want to buy them when they're still green because they're super starchy and they they almost cook like a potato. Uh, you can boil them in water until they're soft. Then you can peel them and use them for mashes and all sorts of dishes. But the more yellow they become, the more sugar that they are developing and the sweeter they are. So when they are sort of yellow with some brown, that is when you can cut them and um, thinly and make them into chips and make them into tostones, uh, which are the big round double fried uh, plantain chips that you'll find in the Latin Caribbean. Um, and then when they get super, super yellow, and with a lot of mottled brown, sometimes even some black in it, is when they're ready to be used for sweets or desserts. So that's when you would cut them into um, diagonal slices and saute them in oil until they're nice and soft, which is what most people know as fried sweet plantains. Or that's when you turn them into jams or jellies or fillings for empanadas and things like that. Is there a recipe that you could talk us through on the radio? Yeah, uh, there are many recipes that I can talk you through because they're they're very easy to prepare. Um, one that I love is the um, just to go to a spicy sauce because it's the first one that comes to my mind is the um, recipe of a sauce by my niece Marisa. It's called salsa de chile jalapeño de Marisa, chile verde, and it is just very simple. You just add your jalapeno peppers, seeds, stems, and all. You add your chopped onion, you add your garlic, you add your uh, spices, and then you add a good amount of vinegar or lime juice, and you blend it together and create this incredible hot sauce. That's one. Another one that is, to me, one of my favorites in the book is the pasta con palta from Chile, which is something that surprises people a lot because people don't know first that Chileans eat a lot of pasta and secondly that this sauce is made with avocados and so it's super simple while your pasta is cooking you blend your avocado with a little bit of cream or a little bit of milk your spices in it and as soon as the pasta comes out of the pot you stir in this sauce in it it also has a, um, a little bit of spinach sometimes or arugula mixed into it so it's like the Chilean version of pesto but there is no not not huge amounts of basil. It's all about the avocado and it's delicious and it's green and it's easy. And like that, there are hundreds of other recipes that I could talk you through that you can make in less than half an hour. I also wanted to ask you about annatto, which is an ingredient you mentioned several times throughout the book. Uh, annatto, which is a, a food coloring that every American has had since they were little if they've ever eaten um, macaroni and cheese or they've ever had cheddar cheese because that's what gives cheddar its orange color. Cheddar is really a white cheese that's been colored with anato. So anato is the seed from the Bija Orellana plant and it is, it is a very, uh, it's like a conical shaped seed, very, very small, very, very hard. And what you need to do in order to get the coloring out is to, um, cook it in a little bit of oil. So the way to do it is to, to use about a cup, three quarters of a cup or a cup of oil, and then add a couple of tablespoons of these whole seeds in it and let the oil just come to a very small, slow simmer and then turn it off 
and let the seeds seep in there, steep in there for a good 10, 20 minutes. And then you strain the oil through a sieve and that's what you use to color your, your dishes. Um, it's delicious. It has a little bit of an acid. Um, I call it a rusty flavor. It's another umami flavor there uh, that produces a very classic Latin Caribbean flavor. And it is, of course, the color gold was very prized in foodways back when the colonizers descended on the Americas. But the Spaniards were used to cooking with saffron and saffron was way too expensive. It still is. They found that anato gave them this beautiful golden color that they desired in their food. Curiously, though, when anato first crosses back to Europe, because it is a, by, a native byproduct of Latin America, um, it is first used for makeup and artists used it to create ochre and orange colors for their palettes, paint mm-hmm. palettes. Talk about the process for testing all these recipes and how time consuming and meticulous that was. Well, for me, because I'm a culinary instructor and because I've taught so many thousands of cooks in my life, I know that we don't all have the same kitchens or the same equipment in our kitchens. So my recipes, I start by testing them after I develop them and I test them once to make sure that the developed recipe works. I start testing it three times and I use different kinds of heat, different kinds of pots. So I'll use a gas stove and an electric stove. I'll use a thick pot. I'll use a copper pot, things like that. And then a very thin flame pot and I make an average of all those times and measurements in order to make a recipe that will work for anybody in their kitchens. After that, it goes to a set of testers that I have. These are usually people who used to work with me in cooking school. So I, they are used to replicating recipes without changing anything because they can't substitute. And they have to follow the recipe exactly as it's written and photograph each step so that I can make sure that they followed everything correctly. And I get those back with their comments. And after I retest that again, it goes to a professional tester. And then I get the recipe back from the tester and I go uh, through all of the comments and use all of those to fine print the recipe so that fine tune the recipe so that I can print a recipe that works well for everybody. Our guest has been cookbook author, cooking instructor, historian, and journalist Sandra A. Gutierrez. She's the author of Latinissimo. Home Recipes from the 21 Countries of Latin America. Vital Voices is heard every Saturday morning at 7 and every Sunday afternoon at 2 here on WETS 89.5 and HD1. I'm Fred Sossman.